Well, good evening once again. It's good to be with you. And um, would you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 12? And we want to read the entire 12th chapter this evening. Romans chapter 12, verse number 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourself. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word. Let's just acknowledge the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the opportunity to open up Your Word once again. And as we do so, Father, we just want to acknowledge Your presence again. Thank You for how You blessed us this morning. And Father, we ask that You would bless us again tonight. God, speak through me. Use my mind and my voice and help me to declare the truth of your word. And Father, I pray that you prepare the hearts of everyone under the sound of my voice to hear you speaking through me. So Father, instruct us, encourage us, 
and help us to learn more from Your Word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to show a video here in just a moment that kind of illustrates for me the idea of living as a transformed community or a place where everybody knows your name. I've grown up in the church from a little boy, and I love the church, the local church. Uh, it has always been just a huge part of my life. The church has been more like a family than some institution we visited on Sundays or midweek. But there's still a vision in my heart about what the church really is meant to do. And that's what we want to look at tonight because that's what I see here in Romans chapter 12. Paul getting at this ideal of a transformed community, us being the people that God intended for us to be. This is a video that I'll show from a, a sitcom named Cheer. Some of you will be familiar with it. And uh, we'll just watch this. Okay, hands up if you're familiar with this sitcom. You've seen it, or at least you know of it, okay? Well, it's actually set in a bar, so forgive me for showing this video with scenes of bar in church tonight, but uh, uh, the lyrics are really what drew my attention to it. This is what it says, Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure will help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name, and they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see. Our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. You want to go where people know. People are all the same. You want to go where everybody knows your name. The whole idea behind this sitcom is that there's, it's set in a bar almost every episode, every scene is there, and people come in, they sit at the bar stool, and they share their problems and their life, and they have friends, and there's a real sense of camaraderie and community that's really displayed in this sitcom. I think the ideal that's been expressed in this and in the sitcom itself is excellent, because we all do want to be part of that type of community. A place where everybody knows your name really speaks to a place where you're accepted, you're important, that people are glad to see you, where you can share with others and everybody realize that all of our problems are the same. I think where the sitcom goes wrong is they got the setting wrong. Rather than setting it in a bar, it should be set in church. That is what church is meant to be. It's not meant to be just a place where we come and we sit and we worship or sing or pray or hear someone preach and then go away to our lives. But the church is meant to be a family that does life together. 
where everybody is accepted, everybody is valued, everybody is strengthened, encouraged, and that's what we're going to look at here today. I hope that this fellowship is well on its way to be in that type of place because this is exactly what it means to be the people of God. And we want to look at how we can become this transformed community. And this is what Paul wants us to realize. Our scripture text talks about that. In the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul explains our relationship with God. I think the first song we sang tonight was on reconciliation, and that's at the very heart of all we've been talking about, about how our relationship can be restored with God. But when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die so that our relationship with God could be restored. He died so that our relationship with one another can be restored. That all of the boundaries and all of the problems that divide people out in the world would be done, done with inside God's church, among the people of God. That in the church there is no sexism or racism, there's no hatred or envy or jealousy. There's none of this stuff that we encounter out there. But in this transformed community, this is a loving community where everybody is respected. Jesus said on one occasion that the, the defining characteristics of his disciples, the thing that would stand out about Christians would be their love for one another. He said, here's how all men will know that you're my disciples. By how you love one another. He didn't say it would be by the name over the door. He didn't say it would be by the doctrine that we believe or preach. He didn't say it would be by the music or any of these other things. He said it would be the love that we have one for another. The way this is meant to work is take this local fellowship. Someone living in Moody's Burn should come in, encounter the people who are part of this fellowship, see relationship done in a way that they've never seen it before seeing love being shared in a way they have never seen it before, and be so overwhelmed and impressed with that that they want to be a part of it. That is the drawing card, is our love for one another. That they say, I didn't know people were like this. I never met people like this before. I didn't know people could be so loving, so accepting, so forgiving. That's what the church of Jesus Christ is all about. So how does a church become a place where everybody knows your name? And excuse me, granddaughter, only one of us can preach at a time, okay? <laughs> well, Paul says that there are three things that need to happen. A changed mind, a changed attitude, and a changed behavior. The first one is in verses 1 and 2, a changed mind. Verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. Now, we've been talking about this for uh, a couple of months now. All that God's grace, His mercy, all that Jesus has done, how that this new righteousness that's from faith in God, apart from the law. He says, in view of all of that, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. This isn't just a head knowledge. This isn't just about a set of beliefs. It is to transform the very way we live our lives so that we are offering our bodies as living sacrifices to God. That means He has control. We, we just, we're His for Him to live through us the way that He wants to. Then he's, but before we can do that, before we can offer our bodies to God, we must be transformed. There's an expression about how we, we are to come as we are. People don't need to be changed or transformed or changed the way they live before they come to Christ. They come as they are. But we need to be transformed before we become useful in the kingdom of God. And this is why in verse 2 he says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is a transformation that takes place first and foremost in our minds. But it's a process. It's not an event. A person doesn't raise their hand in a service or come to an altar of prayer or say the sinner's prayer and become a Christian and then they're transformed into what God wants them to be. It's an ongoing process called spiritual growth or sanctification. But this transformation takes place, he says, through the renewing of our minds. In other words, by changing the way we think. We've talked about that in the past, the battle for the mind. And our minds need to be changed, need to be renewed. The scripture says how that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. He's not concerned about us just conforming to church life. He wants us to be transformed. Look again at what it says in verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. In other words, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't just try to copy the world. Don't, Don't be like the world. But he says, but be transformed. Notice in verse number 2, he doesn't say do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but instead conform to the church. It's not, you know, instead of conforming to the world, now you conform to church. We need to be transformed. It's God who is looking at the heart, not just at the outward appearance. So someone may look like a Christian. From the outward appearance, may go to church and do all the things you expect of a Christian, but what God is really wanting is for our minds to be different. He wants our minds to be restored to the way God intended for them to be. You see, when we came to Christ, our minds were so polluted, so damaged by a life of sin, by the influences of this world, that God's got almost like what you have to do with a computer, reboot it. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where your computer freezes up and it just doesn't work and you've got to go back and reboot it to the factory settings. Get rid of all of the junk and all of the older programs and get it back to that, the state it was in when you first bought it. Well, that's what God does with us. He renews our minds. Get rid of all the junk, all of the poison, all of the bad attitudes and stuff and puts our minds back into a place where it can be useful for Him to restore us. Another place... Paul says this is in Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. By the way, this was the very first memory verse I ever learned in life. My great-grandmother taught this to me. Philippians 2 and 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Did you know that we are called to have the mind of Christ? We are to think like Him. (laughs) That's pretty profound. We're not to think like we want to think or like our parents thought or even like our pastor or somebody. We're to think like God. And that means our minds need to be renewed. Now all of this is important because right thinking leads to right behavior. People will never live a holy life until their mind has been renewed. And sometimes we expect that. We wonder, why does this person keep making the same mistake? Or why do they keep doing this? Or why won't they change? They won't. (laughs) Until their mind is renewed through the power of the Holy Spirit. This new mind changes the way we think from a way of the world that says, think to be selfish. Isn't that the way of the world? Kind of dog-eat-dog, I'll get mine, you know, that kind of attitude. That's not where to be. A conceited mindset, stingy, not being generous, unforgiving. The world says, you know, uh, revenge is a dish best served cold, you know, uh, that if you mess with me, I'm going to mess with you. Uh, The world says that we're to love our friends and hate our enemies. God says all of that is over. It's a whole new way of looking at life. 
And so before we can begin to offer our bodies as living sacrifices and live out this new concept of community, we must first have a changed mind. The second thing that has to happen is a changed attitude. Let's read again verses 3 through 8. He said, For the, by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. We talk about a change attitude. An attitude involves our world view, our personal perception of the world, of ourselves and of God. Once our minds have been renewed and have been changed, been cleaned up of all the junk that we had in it before we came to Christ, then we can be equipped with a new attitude, a new outlook on life, a new perception of things, a new world view that informs how we live our lives day by day. In verse number three, he talks about the difference between having an attitude of arrogance and pride, which is what you have in the world, and an attitude of humility. Not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. Christians are to be humble people, putting others first. In verse 4 and 5, it talks about an appreciation for each other and recognition of our interdependence versus isolation and independence. The attitude of a Christian in the body of Christ is that we all are important. And it's not just my needs or what I want, or what I like, or what I think that's important, but it's how it affects the whole body. Everything we do, we're thinking about the body as a whole. This is the new attitude that God wants us to have. And then verses 6 to 8, as he talks about the body, and how that we have one body with many different members, and they all have a different function. Our arms have a different function than our eyes, and our ears have a different function than our legs. But they all are important. And what this is bringing out is how in the body of Christ, armed with this new attitude, we understand that there is unity in diversity rather than disunity and lack of appreciation for diversity. It is not necessary, nor is it helpful for a local congregation to try to make everybody be the same. Everybody's got to you know, dress the same, talk the same, like the same things, believe everything the same. And many times people mistake unity for conformity. They think that conformity is unity. And if everybody can conform and be exactly like each other, then that's unity. But there is unity in diversity, just like our body is very diverse, all the different parts. But yet they work together with seamless unity. And that's how it's to be in the church of God. Not only that, but there needs to be an appreciation for diversity among Christians from different traditions. One local congregation shouldn't feel like they are the body of Christ or they are the model for it. And every other church needs to believe exactly what they believe and operate the same way they do or somehow they're deficient. It's different, but not deficient. 
God has created this church in such a way that there is a Christian church for every type of person. I'm not talking about false religion. I'm talking about a true Bible-believing, spirit-filled church for all different types. Some people need to go to a church where they're going to be running up and down in front of the church and jumping up and it's really loud and it feels like the place is in a riot. Some people feel at home in that environment. If they came to a church like this, they would feel like a fish out of water. And that's okay. It doesn't mean that this congregation is wrong or their expression or experience is wrong. It's just different, not deficient. And then there are some people who could not survive in a church where as the minister is preaching, people are saying, Amen, that's right, preach it, brother, say it again. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Just throughout the whole service. They would just go bonkers with that. You know, because they're not used to that. In fact, I'm finding I'm becoming more and more unused to that as I go back to Chicago and that happens. Because uh, I've, I've gotten used to how things are here. Where people are quiet, but they're listening intently to everything you say. Amen? Amen. <laughs> but every church is different. But rather than saying that church down there is deficient because they're different than us. Or they don't do it the way we do, believe everything we do, so we can't fellowship them. We should rather see that there's great strength and diversity. Because that way, God can reach all types of people. If the church has stayed a Middle Eastern, predominantly Jewish group, you know, throughout history, it probably would have died off many, many years ago. But it's because it's adaptable to every culture. And I haven't traveled very far in the world, but I have gotten a little bit beyond my own culture. And as I've gone to other places, I've realized that in different parts of the world, people worship God. The same God, the same Jesus, but just a little bit different. You know, their, their traditions or the way they express themselves. And that's a good thing. So appreciate that amongst yourselves. Everybody doesn't have to be a clone of one person. I know a church in Michigan. The pastor wore a certain type of suit and he carried himself a certain way. Even his voice inflection was very distinct. Well, when you visit that church, you realize that all of the men in the church dress the same way. They walk the same way and they talk just like him. You know, and it is quite <laughs> shocking <laughs> when you see it. But that's because they thought that holiness and living for God was let's all imitate the pastor. So he would say, praise God for his glory and his praise. And everybody would talk just like that because this is what he did. That's not what God expects of us. There is unity and diversity and appreciated within the local church. The, the third thing is a changed behavior. And this is in verses 9 through 21. Armed with a new mind, which creates a new attitude, we can begin to live a new lifestyle. In verse number 1, it talks about offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Let's pause there for a moment because this is something really important. Um, there is a real misconception about what the nature of worship is. Some people think of worship as music. So the worship is over now and now it's the preaching. <laughs> you know, or the, when the prayer ends, the worship is over. Music, singing is one expression of worship. When we pray, we worship. When we preach, we worship. But not only that. Sometimes we can overemphasize the worship experience on a Sunday and kind of uh, diminish the worship experience that is take place Monday through Saturday. They both are important, but to some extent is more important 
what kind of worship you're giving God Monday through Saturday than what kind of worship you're giving on Sunday. You can't see worship as just something you do on a Sunday and then you go away and then you wait till next Sunday to come and worship. We are to worship God all day, every day. We are to feel His presence all day, every day. It's great to come to church on a Sunday and feel God's presence and say, Oh, did you feel His presence? Or wasn't God present very strong in the service? That is wonderful. And we should do that. But let me ask you something. Do you feel God's presence on Tuesday morning in the kitchen when you're having a disagreement with your spouse and things are just about to get a bit heated? That's when you need to feel God's presence. <laughs> Do you feel God's presence when you're tempted to watch something on TV or the Internet that you shouldn't watch? That's when you need God's presence. Do you feel God's presence when you, on a Wednesday, get some bad news or there's a disappointment that happens in your life? Do you feel His presence bringing peace and joy to your life at that moment and helping you not to fall into despair? That's when we really need to feel God's presence. And that's all a part of worship. We need to pray. We need to sing. We need to read God's Word. We need to worship Him as much in our homes Monday through Saturday as we do in church on Sunday. If we only do it in church on Sunday, then worship has become for us a spectator sport. It's something you pay your money. That's why they pass the bag at offering time so you can put in your whatever. Okay, this is, this is for today's entertainment. Uh, let me contribute something. Uh, you know, and then you go away until the next time you do it. But that's not what it is. Christianity worship isn't a spectator sport. We're all participators. We are on the field. We are doing the worshiping. We are doing the praising and the singing every day of our life. So worship is a lifestyle. It's how we live our lives, not just something we do for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. Amen? Well, armed with this new mind and this new attitude, then we'll be able to have a new behavior and live out this new lifestyle. One other thing to notice here. Notice how... The way Paul talks about this, what comes first? The changed mind comes first, then the changed behavior. Then he begins to talk about, excuse me, uh, the changed attitude. Then he begins to talk about the changed behavior. The other thing that's interesting to note is after verse number 2, everything he says relates directly to how we live in community. Do you see that? He's talking about offering your bodies as living sacrifices, being transformed by the renewing of your mind, all of these things, uh, giving God uh, your spiritual act of worship. But as he begins to put flesh on this whole ideal, you know, kind of really go into detail and show us what this means, it's very significant that everything he says relates to how we live in community, how we treat other people. Nothing he says from verse 3 on down is about read your Bible more, go to church more, or do any of the religious things that we associate you know, with, with church and with uh, religion or Christianity. What's the point I'm making? God saves us from our sins, gives us a new mind, a new attitude, and wants us to live a new life because it, direct, it relates directly to how we live in community. That is the fundamental, one of the fundamental purposes of the church. 
is to be this transformed community. To be a group of people who live and relate to one another in a way that God intended when he first created man. Which is distinctly different than what we see on display out in the world. And I go back to what I said at the beginning. People who are not Christians are to come in the midst of any Christian church. And the thing that is to blow their mind is not our singing, our preaching, our praying, or our building, or anything like that, how we dress. It is they have never met people like us before. They've never felt so loved. They have never felt so people who were so welcoming. They never felt like they belonged. They've never seen people treat each other the way they see uh, the people of God treating one another. That's what God wants us to be. And so now he goes on in, in the rest of this chapter, uh, particularly from 9 on, to talk about several characteristics of this transformed community. How does this look in very practical terms? Well, the first thing here is verse 9 and 10. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. In other words, this type of community loves from the heart. It's not a superficial love. It's not a love that just comes from our mouth, but it's in our actions. We love genuinely, sincerely. It's not fake or pretend. Here's the challenge for you. Those you worship with here at New Beginnings, do you love them sincerely, deeply from the heart? God never tells us, get along with each other, tolerate one another, just don't kill each other. That's not the standard. The standard is love deeply. Each and every member of the body of Christ, we are to be devoted to one another. Give recognition to others before ourselves and have a sincere desire to build one another up. God wants you to love deeply from the heart. The next thing he tells us to do is in verse 11 and 12. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. In other words, love fuels this type of community spiritual life. You're motivated by love, not out of duty or responsibility or obligation, but as you come together, you work together, the thing, the glue that holds you together is your love for one another and the desire to build up and support and encourage each other. So never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. In verses, verse number 13, he gives another aspect he says in verse 13, share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. This type of community's love is practical. It's not just something you say with your mouth, but you show it every opportunity that you can. He talks about sharing with God's people who are in need. In the fourth chapter of Acts, it describes the New Testament church, the one in Jerusalem in particular, and says that there were no needs among them. For whenever anybody had a need, it was met. That's what God desires of a local church to be like. Where there's something wrong in a local church. If there's someone who worships there and is a faithful member and all they you know, part of the church and, and everybody knows who they are. And they have a serious need in their life or a serious lack. Let's say they don't have a place to live or they don't have any food or something like that. And for the rest of the congregation to just ignore that. And people just figure, well, that's their private life. 
you know, well, that's their issue or their, their concern. That's not, that's not for us. Or their social services or welfare or whatever, the state, of, the state of help them out. That's not God's way. This transformed community is one that no one could rest as long as they knew that there was somebody else in the fellowship who had a need. And it's not just monetary things. If there was a need maybe for someone to babysit so that uh, a single mom could get some time on her own or to go and sit with an elderly person whose all their family is gone and they may be in a nursing home and no one hardly ever comes to visit them. You know, in some churches, the, the, there's this idea that pastoral care is something that the elders or the paid minister is supposed to do. That's not God's way. God's way is that the church looks after each other. Everybody looks after one another. And it's very, very practical. There's a text in, in James, and although he's speaking about faith and using this as an analogy, I, I think it's appropriate to bring into view here. He talks about what good is it if somebody is hungry or naked or has no place to, to live, and you say, I'll pray for you, be well fed, be clothed. Uh, I pray that God gives you a place to live, but do nothing about it. So what good is it? And the answer to that is, there's no good at all. You know, he's saying that uh, in the context of real faith, real faith demonstrates itself in its actions. Well, real love is very much the same way. What good is it if there's a need in the church and at the Wednesday night prayer meeting you're saying, let's pray for this person or let's pray for that person when the church has the power and ability to actually do something about it. There are times when we're praying about things and I think God is saying, quit praying, just do it. You know, we don't need to pray about that if it's something within our control to do. So we are to share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality, and have an attitude of generosity. At the heart of this attitude of generosity is this understanding that none of us own anything. Who owns it? It's all God's. We're just stewards of it. And if I have something that can bless somebody else, then I want to do that. In fact, I have that even in terms of what the gift God has given me to declare the truth of his word. I have an obligation to use what God has given to me. Freely given, you know, I've, I've received it, uh, freely received rather, then it should be freely given to other people as well. Whatever you have, make sure you use it to bless God's people. The next thing he says in verse 15 and 16, let's look there. Verse 15, he said, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Now here's a real practical and uh, I think appropriate thing to point out in churches today. And this is the thing about being a guest minister. I don't know if this is here or not, so nobody can accuse me of trying to step on your toes or point fingers. But in too many churches... There are the haves and the have-nots. There are cliques. There's the in crowd and the out crowd. Just like, remember in high school how it was like that? You know, you had the jocks or the, the popular people and the nerds and, you know, all these different groups and stuff. Well, that's not supposed to be in the church. Okay, there's no big eyes and little U's in the church. If there's somebody in your church who's worth a billion pounds, that person is no more important than a person who's on welfare or relief. Amen? Yeah. You guys don't sound convinced. <laughs> you know, somebody might have 10 degrees. Maybe they got, a whole, they got the whole alphabet behind their name. <laughs> and then somebody who didn't finish the second grade, that person is just as important and valuable in the church. 
there's nobody who is important and then nobody who is you sit in the back and you're not that important. Everybody is important. And he says that here. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. It harms this transformed community and hinders God's work when a local congregation allows itself to have cliques. To have people who are in power and then those who don't have much influence. And, and people who are controlling things and others, they don't have a say in it. People who seem to always be put forward and respected and appreciated and those who are just pushed in the back. That should not be in God's house and in the people among the people of God. So this type of community relates to all people, regardless of their situation or status. Galatians 3.26 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This ideal here expressed here is that we are to be a people who rejoice with those who rejoice. You know? So if Sandy pulls up, and a 60,000 BMW next Sunday, you don't feel jealous about it. You rejoice with them. Say, praise the Lord. If God has blessed him, he's had some good fortune, then you're excited about it. You're excited for him. Okay? <laughs> and we also mourn with those who mourn. If somebody comes in and they've lost their job or something has gone bad in their life, it's not like, well, I don't want to be bothered with that. No, you come alongside of them and you let them know, I feel your pain. Because if one person is hurting in the church, then everybody is sharing that burden. Yeah. We're talking about a place where everybody knows your name. A church that's a transformed community, a family, where you just feel accepted and welcomed and cared for. This is what God wants us to be. Moving on to verse number 14, 17 through 21. Verse 14, he says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Then verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right, do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. The world's way is, love your friends, hate your enemies. God says, no, love your enemies as well. The people who mistreat you and talk about you, you got to love them too. And I love what it says here about in verse 18. It says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you. <laughs> I'm glad he qualified it. <laughs> he didn't say live at peace with everybody because some people just make it hard to do that. But if there is a breach in a relationship, if there's somebody you just cannot get along with, make sure that you've done everything you can. You, you have bent over backwards trying to be gracious to them. You know, we, we actually, we're living in a flat now. And we have some people who live downstairs with us that this scripture reminds me of. <laughs> you know, uh, we, we moved in a year ago. And as um, a believer in Jesus Christ, I want to set a good example and love them. And hopefully have an opportunity to win them to the Lord. But um, they just don't seem to like us, you know. Uh, and it, there's been some times when we've had to call the police because they were having wild parties downstairs at 4 o'clock in the morning, you know. And you just can't put up with that. So uh, being a Christian doesn't mean that you have to be victimized. And so the police came out there and told them to shut down the music. Well, they didn't like that too much. So now every time I get out of the car, I'm going in. Whenever I see the lady downstairs, I say, hello, good afternoon. And she gives me a dirty look and just go on and doesn't respond back. But I'm determined that she will not decide for me how I'm going to treat her. 
I'm going to keep saying, hello, how are you? Good to see you, you know, and, and whatever I can I, to, to try to win her over. But if in the end she still doesn't like me, then, <laughs> you know, as much as it depends on me. Same with you. There will be people who you just cannot get along with. And they may blame you for something unfairly. Don't let Satan beat you up about that and say it's your fault. Just do the best you can. But we are to make sure we reach out to those who don't love us. <coughs> when we get to issues like this, this is why the first two points are so important. Because unless you have had that changed mind and changed attitude, you will never be able to love people who mistreat you. <laughs> now, the scripture doesn't say we are to like them and to make them our best buddy and go out of our way to spend a lot of time with them. The love he's talking about here is agape love. Agape love is the love of God operating in the human heart. It's seeing people the way that God sees them. And we are to have that for people. And so there may be somebody that I'll never be able to sit down and have a coffee with or go out to dinner or have them over for a meal because they just will not have that relationship with me. But I can make sure I have no hatred or envy or you know anything in my heart towards them. He goes on to say, do not, uh, verse 19, do not take revenge, my friends. Believe room for God's wrath. What is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. You know why he says that? Because God is the creator of both me and the person I have an issue with. And only he has the right to punish either one of us. I am not to try to take revenge. And uh, it's a difference in taking justice and taking revenge. If somebody beats you over the head or robs you at you know, life point or something like that, you have the right to get the police involved and have that person prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. That's not taking revenge. That's justice. But revenge is if somebody says something bad about you, then you've got to say something bad about them. Or if they've hurt you in some way, you've got to try to get them back. That's a whole different set of motivation involved there. And we are not to seek revenge against people because that person is still God's creation and God still loves them and has a plan for their life so we need to respect that and leave it up to God to deal with it uh, my parents had that rule in our home I was the oldest of eight and I was often left to babysit and my mom and dad made it very clear to me though I did not have the right to whip or punish my brothers and sisters if they did something wrong I was to tell them and they would take care of it. Now they told them, listen, you're to give Darnell the same respect when we're out of the house as you would give us. Because we've left him in charge. But if they disobeyed, then all I can say is, okay, I'm going to tell mom and dad when they get home. And the reason I couldn't discipline them is because I'm just a child as well. Just like them. That was for the parents to do. And the same when it comes to us trying to seek revenge against someone else. We've got to leave it up to God. He said that is his job to do. And in verse 20 he says, On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. You're to treat people who treat, treat nicely people who treat you badly. Somebody who mistreats you or talk about you or hurt you in some way, go out of your way to do good to them. That's the Christian way. That's the God way. That's this transformed community. Yeah, take them some flowers or send them a card or pray for them or something. Oh yeah, send them some flowers. Okay. <laughs> Good idea. 
in doing this, you will heap burning coals on their head. And there's a lot of commentators have different views on what he means here. He's quoting from the Old Testament. And does it mean that when you do good to somebody who's done you wrong, you'll bring guilt on them and they'll feel so bad about it and it'll change their behavior? Well, perhaps. But I don't think what Paul has in mind here is a sly way to get at them, you know, and to cause them pain. You know, maybe he's taking this from analogy of a blacksmith who would heat up metals to be able to bend them and mold them and shape them in the way that he wants. And what they would do is to heat more coals on that fire to make the fire hotter and hotter and that make that metal more pliable and they'd be able to bend it. And that's what we can do. When we treat somebody nice and get graciously, we can actually begin to break them down. You'll see them just begin to melt. That, that, that hardness just kind of melt away and them to come around eventually. Now, it may not happen tomorrow or overnight, but if you keep doing it, keep doing it to them, God will move in their heart and they'll begin to uh, treat you very differently and see you differently. There's a scripture in Proverbs that talks about how the king's heart is in the Lord's hand. And as the rivers of water, he turns it whatever way he wills. And that's what God can do. Someone who doesn't like you today, if you follow God's way, you can actually transform that enemy into a friend. Where they'll come to have a total different opinion of you. I've got personal experience with that because my mother-in-law was like that when I first got married. She did not like me. <laughs> and uh, we had a very contentious relationship, you know. I think I, I just was this young whippersnapper coming in taking away her daughter. And, and uh, she just had to adjust to that. But as time went on. And my, my father was a great help in this. He said, Darnell, just love her and be respectful and just leave her in God's hand. And she wasn't a Christian at that time. But uh, a few years later, she gave her heart to the Lord. And as we continued to just work on our relationship, she came completely around until she would speak very, very highly of me. So this does work. Agape love, the love of God operating in the human heart can transform an enemy into a friend. Well, just as I conclude here, just want to make a couple final closing statements. The whole point in this is that as a local fellowship, you want to work by God's grace to be a place where everybody knows your name. This transformed, loving community. And that's what the church is meant to be. A local church should not be a collection of strangers who meet for an hour and a half on a Sunday, then go back to their life. But you should do life together. You know, where it's, it's a real friendship and a real relationship. And uh, I want to just pray that God will bless you to continue to be a place where it can be said, Welcome to New Beginnings Church, a place where everybody knows your name, where people really feel welcomed and loved. That's what God desires for you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, let me pray and then I'll hand it back over to you, Graham. Dear God, thank you so much for your word and thank you for saving us from our sins. Thank you for adopting us into your family. And Father, as we've um, studied here tonight, your great desire for the people of God is that we would be this transformed community. That we would love in a way that no one has ever experienced elsewhere. Uh, that the name of Jesus Christ will be lifted up. That people will feel really accepted that there will be forgiveness and graciousness, generosity, all of these attributes uh, that we've talked about here tonight. And I just pray, Father, that you help us all to cooperate with you 
and to surrender ourselves completely to you so that you will work in our lives so that we can be that type of people. I thank you for this local expression of your church, New Beginnings Church here in Moody's Berm. I pray your protection on them, your blessing on them, and I pray that this church will continue to work to be this type of community. So, Father, just thank you for your word. Continue to speak to us long after we left this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.